What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smarter, more inspired, or more more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up, folks? I'm not going to make this intro too long for you because I actually talk quite a bit in this episode. That's because my friend Chris from the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast was generous enough to have me on his show, and this is our interview. I think anyone who enjoys my podcast would enjoy his as well. He sits down with a bunch of creative professionals shaking things up, breaking the mold, and working on interesting projects, something we're, of course, a big fan of here. But yeah, I asked if I could repurpose our interview as an episode of The Emulsion. He kindly obliged, and so here we are. The rules are reversed. I'm the one getting interviewed this time, and hopefully you learn a thing or two about me that you didn't know before because he, I thought, asked some great questions. But I also include tips on the transition from restaurant cooking to the personal chef and event business, staging, content creation, uh, via podcasts and YouTube, the best practices from the world's best chefs. He asked me, like, what were my biggest takeaways from working at places like French Laundry? I talk about pop-ups, and then we get into kind of a fun dialogue on charging from your services, charging for your services. So uh, links for Chris and the CWR podcast are where the links are, as always. I hope you enjoy this one. All right, welcome, everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today, we have Chef Justin Kana. So Justin spent a number of years working in some of the best restaurants in the world, including Per Se, Grace, Noma, and Restaurant Franzen. He is the co-founder of Voyager's Table, a bespoke event production company. Welcome to the show, Justin. Hey, thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be on here. It's uh, been too long that we've gone without, well, minor interactions on Twitter is is one thing, but having this kind of long-form discussion is going to be even more of a pleasure. Most definitely. I think there's a, a growing number of like food podcasters on Twitter and they tend to be communicating with each other and interacting and talking not just about food, but podcasting and the whole food media world right now. And I think it's a, a good time to be back on Twitter, something that I've always loved. I've talked about how I got on, you know, like 10 years ago, I think, and it was really great for networking in the food world. And then it fell off a bit. And now I feel like it's coming back a bit. It's the Wild West for sure in that not only are these skills that don't get taught at restaurants or like any of our, like you can't take a podcasting course at culinary school, but then at the same time, there's this like, so I have my own podcast called the emulsion and I just people that I I had a video, it was a knife bag review video. And I asked people like how long their commute was. And it's just like, you hear people that are just, they, they have these two 45 minute windows of their day and they're on their way to work or they start off the shift prepping in the kitchen by themselves with a pair of headphones in. And like, why would you not take advantage of that in a way, especially like where, where you're bringing these conversations to light. And I talk a lot about just like improving your career and, you know, conversations with people who are going down some unconventional paths as well. So I think that it's a, it's, it's a great resource for people that I certainly didn't have when I was starting out. Well, I think one of the things is now you're seeing so many more food entrepreneurs. I mean, even a decade ago, for me, it was almost unheard of. Like I was just starting my business as a side hustle 10 years ago, and nobody was using the term side hustle. I was just trying to figure a way out of my job. But as you have your own business, you also need to be your own marketer unless you have the money to hire someone. I think the easiest thing is you start 
blogging, you start doing your own photos, you have a website, now a podcast. I mean, I think it's a great way, obviously, to get attention to your business and what you do. But I also think it's a great way to just network with people. And it's amazing to see how many of them there are. Every day, there seems to be a new just food podcast. Do you listen to a lot of food podcasts? I, I don't, I admittedly don't listen to a ton. I don't listen. Curious. Yeah, I don't listen to that many, actually. I mean, for me, it's more about episodes. And I'm sure it's the same with like, maybe our listeners, like I go for guests. So I know some of the better known guests on my podcast, you know, you clearly get higher listens to, or if it's a topic I'm interested in. Uh, I think we're all going through the same thing right now with COVID and schedules changing. Like I don't have a commute like I used to. Um, I used to listen to a lot more, but I'm listening to podcasts that I admire outside of the food space to make myself better at podcasting. Same, same. You know, I think it's the same way with like food and art. Like I was almost inspired by travel and art and things outside of the food world. So it's not like just being in an echo chamber of everyone's doing the same thing. So I'd rather listen to the Tim Ferriss show or, you know, Joe Rogan, like what are these guys doing to build a bigger podcast? Gary Vee, obviously, you know, all, all of their things and taking their models and then applying it to my own. Yeah, I think you're also, and I do the same thing, you're probably taking some different insights from episodes of like Tim Ferriss than uh, one of your listeners would take from your podcast. And when I say that, it's like, you are the one that's going to be asking future questions. And so you can take a lot from, you know, how Tim asks questions and structures conversations versus someone who wants to learn a little bit more about what it takes to be a chef without a restaurant. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And you know, you never know who your market is. You know, I think I was thinking if I had a guest on who had a following that like his followers or her followers would listen, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. It's more in like the business entrepreneurship realm. So I'm getting people outside of the food world listening to the show because we're talking about business advice. I've I've had a lot of candid conversations with business owners and I don't think they always want their customers to hear that. You know, when you're there's a lot of struggles right now, especially with COVID. And we've had people come on saying like, I'm barely hanging on and I don't know if my business is going to be around in a month. They don't necessarily want to advertise that to their customers to hear that they're potentially going to be closed in a month. So I'm kind of looking at like, wow, I did this one hour show with you, which is basically like a commercial for you. I can't believe you didn't share it on your Facebook page. And then you go back and you listen and you think, oh, maybe they don't want their customers to hear that. They want it to be business advice for other business owners, but they don't want their customers to get worried that their restaurant is going to close. That's a fascinating insight. And then the other, well, the other thing I was going to share on your point on going for specific episodes, I, I, I think that I hope we see it with Spotify. Like I hope Spotify figures out how to do like a great explore style function with episodes of podcasts as opposed to the kind of like Apple centric, I use Overcast for listening to my podcast where it's like, they'll give you good shows or shows that are getting a ton of downloads right now. But the kind of like um, curated exploring type of, you know, feature, I, I haven't found something that that is really like super good yet. And I think the interesting thing is to have a good variety not within just yourself, but within all the podcasts in your realm. So like, if there's four or five of us doing shows, I don't want to be that we're all having the same guests because you see that on everything else. Like you listen to Tim Ferriss and he'll have Naval Ravikant and you listen to James Altucher and he'll have Naval Ravikant. And then like a week later, he'll be on Gary Vee. And it's like, they're not really telling you much new stuff. They're telling the same stories and anecdotes on each show. So I look at 
podcasts like yours and see like, who have you had on? It's like, oh, you just had chef so-and-so then I don't necessarily want to do that right now. Totally. Um, but people are podcasting with such frequency. I mean, you look at some of these guys who are putting out a show like every day or every other day and it's like, wow, they're going to grab everyone. Like I need to get some guests lined up before they get on the best served podcast or something like that. I, I, I wish I had that kind of conviction because if, if I went audio only, I know I could just have so much more speed. But like I'm, I, I have such a romantic, and maybe it's necessary. Maybe it's a little bit uh, too inflated on just appreciating video because I watch so much video myself, and so I just think that there should be a video element to so many of these things. But if I have an idea out, and there's a guy who I who I'm following who has gotten me a lot more okay and accepting of the fact that writing might be the thing that is is a little bit better for me because if I have the ability to kind of let my thoughts calcify by writing them, then at least I know if I publish a piece of content before a video comes out, then at least it's a well-formed thought that then might dictate based on the feedback it gets, how I can structure a video under the same subject. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people who are doing really incredible daily shows. I don't, I, I, I don't have the chops for it yet. Well, I guess if you're also working a nine to five, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people working nine to fives who are also doing shows, but especially now, a lot of people are not working and they're going heavy, myself included. I mean, I lost a lot of work. Thankfully, I'm back to work some, but I'm not working at the volume that I was before. So I have more time, which is why I can record three shows in a week. Uh, and then it's just as long as it takes for me to edit them and get them out, which takes a lot more time than I think people realize if they're not into this thing. 100%. So let's go back a little bit. How did you get into the food world? Were you always interested in cooking and food? Ish. I, I, the, the, the early exposure I had to food was through travel, just like on family vacations. Like we would road trip from where I grew up in Wisconsin, like up into like Niagara Falls and then down into Boston and then into like New York area. Uh, we like went to Spain and I remember going to like a suckling pig restaurant Um going to just Chicago was like the close city for me. And I just like enjoy, enjoyed food growing up, but I grew up in a tiny 1500 person town in Wisconsin where pizza and burgers and chicken wings was like the gastronomy of, of, of the, the area. And so my, my dad is grew up in India in Northern India and he moved here after he graduated college. And my mom is from like a small town in Wisconsin. And so my Indian grandmother passed away when I was around 11 and she cooked, she would cook for herself. But I, again, when you're, when you're that young, like you either, if I, if I spent a lot of time with her, I feel like I would have gotten a little bit more into food, but my uh, American grandmother is like, she's a product of her, her time. She would just like lots of stuff from packages, you know, like lots of oven baked or, or one pot kind of, kind of things that are like very Americana, scallop potatoes, like spiral cut ham, all that kind of stuff. So I don't have the story of like being next to my mother's or my grandmother's apron strings uh, growing up. What I did do a lot growing up was like, I played a lot of video games. I was in, like, I did track and field. I was in, I played jazz trumpet. I was on the math league. Like, I did a bunch of stuff because I thought that I was going to go. My dad wanted me to be a computer programmer and he wanted me to go to a good school that would eventually give me kind of like a good career. Um, and so I did a lot of these diverse extracurriculars in, in a hope that it would give, it would set me up and tee me up for kind of like a good college acceptance. And I just remember sitting in my 
high school guidance counselor's office and her saying like, like, do you want to go through these applications to like these big schools? Uh, it was like my junior year of high school. Like I have, I had a 4.0, I was ready to do it. And then she was, she asked me that and I was like, I kind of want to go to, I want to, I kind of want to try cooking school. And I don't, it's, it's funny because it's one of those things where I wish I could remember if there was a singular moment when I knew that I wanted to do this thing, but cooking for me, and this is kind of like the punchline was this cool combination of all these other things that I had done in my kind of like in that point in your life where you don't really know what you want to do yet, but you're forced to make a decision. Or it was like, I was on my feet working with my hands. There was the ability to travel, which I knew that I wanted to do. I was working with people on a day to day, but it, it was, it was the right kind of creative where I knew I wasn't going to be a starving artist. Like I knew there was like an element of like my dad watched tons of the um, food network uh, when I was growing up. And so I would see like Emeril Lagasse have like all of these different lines of products and stores and uh, you know, Mario Batali before the whole fiasco, like having all these restaurants. And so I knew there was, there was an element where I could be a creative without being a starving artist. But then at the same time, like, there was enough of the kind of like science of cooking in there where it was like, it satisfied my, my nerd side. And like, you know, it's one of the last industries where you're working with tools, like sharp tools, like knives and, you know, spoons. And most of the people who follow my stuff know that I'm like a huge gearhead at heart. And so it's like, it checked enough of those boxes where I was like, okay, well I can do this as kind of like, this is going to be what I go to after college. And then if I end up kind of enjoying it, then, then it'll just be an upside. It's just none of those other things like going into music or going into academia or being an athlete or anything like that, like really got me excited to a point where I was like, I, I can do this as a career. Cooking was the first thing that really um, stood, stood out like that. And then I moved to New York for culinary school and then the door just got blown off, man. Like being in a kitchen for the first time and just like feeling the adrenaline and the camaraderie and like the pressure of being there by five o'clock and like putting up a plate that someone was happy with, or even just like, I've always enjoyed those tasks and activities that have immediate feedback. Like I liked, I liked driving. Uh, tennis is like one of my favorite sports where it's like, you, you just, you, in the moment, you know, like immediately what you have to do to do better. But then at the same time, it's not something where, um, it's like a, like you're submitting a proposal to a client and you have to wait six days before you hear back from them. Do you know what I mean? It's like you either like the egg is either cooked or it's not, you know? And in that moment, like you, you can either do it again or you just, you get sent home, you know? And for some reason that like, that really, I really enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, I hope that kind of gives a little bit of a foundation. Yeah. And you've worked at some of the best restaurants in the world. I mean, it's amazing. So you did per se was your internship for school. Is that right? Yeah. So the funny story there is I really wanted a linear. Like I remember I, I'm the type of obsessive that just finds something that they enjoy. And I really just dive, dive deep into like learning all about it. And I remember discovering a linear right around 2009, 2010, and I just became obsessed with what Grant and the team were doing. Like they were doing things with food that I didn't even think was possible. I thought it was beautiful. I really just got a huge amount of respect for him and his story. And I thought for sure that I was going to go to Alinea. I was going to work under Grant. I was going to come back to Alinea after my culinary school time. And I was going to mentor under him. And then I was going to open a three-star Michelin restaurant in Chicago. That was the goal. Um, and 
Alenia was just a horrendously bad experience. Like I showed up there on the first day and the first thing that anybody said to me was don't talk to me. Like that was the first thing that uh, some guy said when I walked in the door. Um, and then like, uh, I just like, I got paired up with a chef de partie and my only job during service was to sweep the floors. Like I, I could tie these little bundles together of, I think it was time cinnamon and rosemary with a little bit of twine and like that went into a bowl that they would pour water over to make like a tableside broth that you would smell as you were eating this uh squab dish i'm almost i'm almost positive but like if i wasn't tying those little bundles i was sweeping the line and the just it's just a crazy environment and i i I truthfully like i cut my finger uh really bad like as i was dicing butter and i just had to like hide it and like go like go back out into the alley because i was just like so embarrassed like i I clearly was not ready for alinea um but at the same time i just i saw the types of learnings that i would go through in an environment like that and i was like this i don't know if this is exactly how i want to spend my externship like I, i i'm actively choosing at the Culinary Institute of America, they, they dissuade you from taking unpaid externships because for most students, it's like a four-month thing. I wanted to extend mine to be six months to get as much out of the, the time that I could. Um, and they the school actively dissuades you from taking unpaid externships because they know that the students aren't always treated the best. Um, there's a high rate of people that don't end up returning to the college after doing a unpaid externship. Um, and so I tell the joke that like per se was my plan B, like I had staged at a ton of different places in New York and I was just like, okay, Alinea didn't work out. I want to go stage at per se, because if I didn't go to per se, that would, I was so panicked that that did not set me up on the path that was in my head of like, you're going to work at a three Michelin star restaurant. That's going to tee you up to go get a chef to partie job after the, after school. And that's going to be your golden ticket to opening this three star in Chicago. Um, but yeah, per se was a, a a very eye-opening and very fulfilling experience because I was so prepared to make the most of it. I think there's a lot of people who, uh, have horror stories about per se. There's a lot of people who were just peers of mine as externs at per se, who were just like, they just went through the motions, you know, like they would just like go to the bathroom for 15 minutes and sit on their phone. Uh, they just tried to find the tasks that were just like the easiest ones on the prep list to do. And they would just say like, Oh, I'm going to go cry back the chive oil, you know, like as opposed to, you know, wanting to stay after and do foie gras projects with the AM sous chef, you know, like you, it really taught me the, the mentality of like an experience is what you make it not necessarily like, I mean, you have this incredible opportunity because at the time, Sam Sifton gave per se best restaurant in New York, like while I was an extern there, which like was completely bonkers because it was like one of his last reviews, if I'm not mistaken, as like the food critic for the New York Times, which is like there's four stars in the New York Times and there's best restaurant in New York at the New York Times. Uh, I mean, the cylinders that that place was firing on at that time is just like ridiculous. Um and so, yeah, like that, that was a really good experience, not just from a network building perspective, because I still keep in touch with a lot of those people that were at that restaurant at that time, but it also gave me the confidence to know what it was like to operate, like to, to just stand in a kitchen like that and not get intimidated because like 
you get yelled at and screamed at, you get called an idiot, like you mess things up and it's such a valuable place to do it from, from like the lens of an extern, like you're, you're there working for free. They know you're only going to be there for a couple of months. And so it's like, you have enough skin in the game to take things seriously, but at the same time, it's like not going to completely cripple you where you're uh, worried about it, ruining your career if you fuck something up. Yeah. I mean, internships are such an interesting thing. I had to do one for Johnson Wales, but mine was like almost the opposite experience. I mean, it was a good experience, but I ended up working at a hotel in Minneapolis. Like I randomly picked Minneapolis because they had housing there, but I got to learn so much because it wasn't one of those places. So I love Chicago. I'm a lot older than you. I wanted to go to Charlie Trotter's. There you go. And I remember they offered me a job, but it was not paid at all. And I would have to pay for housing. So I'm 21 years old. I'm going to have to move from like Providence, Rhode Island to Chicago, figure out where the hell to live, how to pay for it and not make any money. But I thought that's where I wanted to work. Like when I was that age, that was the pinnacle of like fine dining and they offered me a job and I had to turn it down. And I think in hindsight, it was probably a good choice. I've heard so many horror stories about him and how he runs his kitchens and it doesn't align with how I like to run my kitchens. And I don't think I would have been happy there. So I ended up going to this hotel where I was paid. So I had skin in the game there and they held me accountable. Like I was given jobs. I'm not sweeping floors because I'm getting paid a salary to be there. But I walked in first day and after introducing myself, they put me right to work and didn't even give me, you know, I had freedom. It was like, we have an event. We need you to do like a, you know, a fruit and cheese tray. Go do it. How do you want me to do it? Oh, well, you're a chef. Figure it out. The, tr- the mirrors are in the hallway. The stuff's in the fridge. Like no one was micromanaging me, sure. but I was working the line by the end of the week. I mean, it wasn't just doing mundane prep stuff. Like I was on hotline. I was creating specials and doing all this stuff. And I learned so much from those guys. I mean, my chef was classically trained French, but he was also like a Minnesota hunter and, you know, had a lot of game stuff on the menu and, and fish and really cool things. And I learned so much more there than I even thought I was going to, because it was, I mean, we worked the hotline at night and there was two line cooks and an expo. And that was it. You know, like there was no place to hide. There was no 15 minute bathroom breaks. It was like totally in the line. And you had to learn like every station in that kitchen for both the restaurant and the hotel or the, the catering department. So it was really interesting and I'm really glad I got to do it. And I got to live in a penthouse for three months. Jeez. Not bad. Not bad. No, not bad at all. They, (laughs) They were renovating it. And I got there and there was me and one other guy from Johnson & Wales and they put us up in the penthouse. So the two of us had the whole top floor, the whole 13th floor to the whole hotel it was a pretty sweet t- time in my life yeah, to be some, 21 living in a hotel in downtown Minneapolis. Yeah, there's some ridiculous opportunities that come. I almost, I almost, almost, if I wasn't going to um, go to find a job in fine dining, I remember it was like two weeks before our graduation, some guy random, randomly came into our university. I was taking a front of house class and he was looking for a chef to do a Mediterranean yacht program where like you, you just cook for a family of seven, I think on a, on a yacht that's just going to cruise the Mediterranean for like two months. Uh, and it happened to be like six weeks after I graduated or something like that, like perfect timing for me to just like clear all my stuff out of New York and then go, you know, spend some time on this yacht. There's just like, there's incredible opportunities in this industry. If you're just like, you're, you're, you turn into a yes person. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So working at all these restaurants, what were some of the things that you saw that all the restaurants did, were there some best practices that amongst all these restaurants they were doing and things that you still see as positives? Because there's a lot of things that all restaurants are doing that I think we need to be doing away with. But what were some of those things that you just noticed all the places were doing? Anything? Yeah. 
So I, I do need to add a caveat because I, there's a, there's a common practice that's thrown around that is like, if you stage somewhere, don't say that you worked somewhere. And so I worked at no, I worked at, um, Grace and French Laundry and Lise Verkit, but I staged at Franzen and Noma and I did my externship at Per Se. So I want that to be just be like on the record because I know that a lot of people like don't like when those things are conflated. Um, and I, I just like to be fully transparent on it because it's like I, I, the, the places that I list, it was not just like I went in for a day and like I left. Some of these were like longer term stages, but, um, yeah, I just want that to be on the record so that people don't get it conflated. It's just hard when like I worked at this restaurant in, on the west coast of Norway for this half Norwegian, half American guy who just got covered by Gordon Ramsay on his show as like the guy uh, who's doing it on the west coast of Norway. But I say Lisfaka and nobody knows what that place is. But then they're like, oh, well, did you go to this one place in Noma uh, in, in Scandinavia when you were there? I don't remember the name. And then I say, oh yeah, like I stopped at Noma for a little while. And then they're like, you were at Noma? And then it just like completely blows the lid off that. And for some reason, that's the only thing that they remember is like, oh, I stopped at Noma. And then they're like, this guy worked at Noma. Not, yeah. not, not the case. Need and that's the that place in. that everyone gets annoyed with is like, oh, everyone went and swept the floors at Noma, right? Exactly. Like, isn't that the exactly. Joke? Totally, totally. Um, so all that, that disclaimer uh, in there. I think that the, the biggest thing that I took away, especially from Thomas Keller restaurants, was like systems-focused thinking. So the idea that um, the Comey list was a printed template thing that lived in a folder in the chef's office and the sous chef would go there, put the date on the top, put that in another folder that then the expediting sous chef would take and then bring that to the menu meeting that would happen in the evening because the menu got rewritten every single night. And then during after the menu meeting, different chef de parties would request what they would want to get done on the Comey list for the next morning. And just that idea of like organizing how you prep things was completely opposite from what I was used to from my first restaurant job, which was like working in what was called a world bistro in the tiny town in Wisconsin where I was from, where it was like, if you needed to make Demi, you put it on the whiteboard, you know, like that's, that's what, that, that was the system, you know what I mean? Because it was like, there was only a couple of us and that was the communication pipeline by which we communicated to each other. We'd write it on the whiteboard. Um, Same thing with recipes, you know, like if you're making black olive puree, there is a recipe that's scaled in grams to how to make this black olive puree. And a lot of times, like there is a, like in that recipe, and I use the black olive one because it requires you to soak dried olives in advance before you make it. And, you know, there was a thing amongst our us chef de parties where there was a hack where you could uh, compress it in the cryovac machine to soak them a little bit faster when you would forget. But just the idea that, like, if you knew black olive puree was going to be on your recipe, it wasn't just something that, like, you as the chef de partie was instructed with to make it taste good. It was like you were part of a much larger machine and organization where, like, the chef put the expediting sous chef put black olive puree on that recipe because they knew that if they told that to you on at 505, when you passed up your components for that dish, they knew what components they were getting. Do you know what I mean? And that is necessary when you have 10 dishes on a tasting menu that change every single day. You have to have those systems in place. 
And so just like organizing recipes in that way, like I really took that, took that away. And, you know, the chef de cuisine at Franzen was a line cook at per se for a while. And so it's like you, in the same way that you bring up Charlie Trotter, like you can draw these lines back in the lineage to see like where these either mental models or systems or ways of organizing came from. Um, there's other little, little things, right? Like uh, there's, there's a lot of big, um, I, don't, I don't know if it's big discussion, but like people debate about cutting the tape and do you cut tape as a way to make things look cleaner, to slow yourself down, to aesthetically have your prep look pleasing, or do you just kind of like barrel your way through it? I think what often gets conflated is like, oh, you're just doing it because you are super OCD and you need all your lines to be straight. But I think anybody who's worked at a Thomas Keller restaurant knows how much green tape they go through because like the pass gets taped down. So you put white linens on the stainless steel countertop and then you use the green tape to like um, affix it to that so that when you put the plates down, it doesn't ha- produce this like big clanging noise. But during the evening, during the service, like you have sauce and chives and stuff that gets on this, this linen. So then at the end of the night, the tape comes off and then the linen just comes off. But by cutting the tape in that way, you make it so that when the guest comes in to see the kitchen, it's like, it just looks a little bit more pristine. And then I worked for a butcher shop right before I moved to, to Europe. And it was a guy who used to work at Meadowood, which is the other, another three-star in like the Napa area. And he told me that the, the, the quickest thing he can do to make a walk-in look better is to go in and write all new labels and, you know, cut the tape and put them on the containers because it's just an immediate, like, ah, like an an exhalation when you like it, it, the the containers might not be fully consolidated and you know, the things might not be on the right shelf where they need to be. But like when the tape is torn, it just adds this extra element of like things are kind of skewed and a little bit ripped and like out of place. Um, and so that was, that was very interesting. That, that was like a takeaway of, of those things. I think just overall cleanliness is something that catches a lot of people who are going from um, a place that does not does not execute in, you know, wherever that tipping point is, right? Where it's like, whether you call it Michelin, whether you call yourself a fine dining place, whether it's you have a tasting menu or not, I think that there's an element of, I call it on my channel, total station domination, where you just like, everything is so in its place from a, um, I have my... Um, tweezers that sit on the kind of like the left side of my Bain Marie, because when I spin around after I open my low boy, I can like go and grab that. And if there's like a little bit, I, and I actually have a folded towel in front of that Bain Marie, because I know that the tweezer will kind of like drip two drops of water onto the countertop. And so I have that towel there to like catch that water as it's like coming out of the thing. And it's just like, it, it truly becomes in the same way that you hear about any of these like great athletes who have like this routine that they do before they like go onto the court so that they can perform in this way. Um, that really stuck with me. And I really just, I geek out about that stuff. Like I, I loved again, back to like things that I grew up with. Cause I listen, man, like I'm five foot 11 with my hair spiked up like this, you know, like I'm not a big guy. Uh, I, like a little bit of coordination with like tennis, but like I have to be tall to be good at tennis. So it's like, I'm not going to be an athlete, but I have this intense love for kind of like going out there and performing and doing a good job under pressure. And so like cooking was the space that allowed me 
was the first place where I was like, okay, like I can actually do something like this. And so that's why I really kind of leaned into it like that. But I think, yeah, those three things, I would say, like systems focused thinking, um, little kind of nitpicky things that seem like they're just like little flexes or they don't actually matter, like cutting the tape and like overall cleanliness, total station domination. Like there's a lot of kitchens where you don't break down during the, the prep day. But like, I can distinctly remember staging at Alinea and right before staff meal, like you completely break down the entire kitchen. Everything gets taken off of the countertops. You scrub the, the um, counters, tops and the sides. Uh, you scrub the floors. Uh, you completely take everything off of the stove. Um, and that sets you in a good headspace to go into service. And a lot of you know, due to lack of resources, lack of time, like whatever, there's a lot of places that just don't do that. And I, I, I understand why that can't happen, but you see the other side and you're like, okay, like this is important. And like, I really value it when we can get it done. You know, I think really quick to touch on that. I think one of the challenges is so many of those places have so much unpaid labor. I think, you know, I've talked about that Huge. with a lot of people. So, you know, I've, never worked at a place where we took stages ever. So everyone who is in there was paid and I've run a lot of them. So, you know, you have a, a budget to manage and it's hard to have someone like all these people you're paying to do all these things. It's the same with intricate plating, right? Like all these places, they have 17 people with their hands in the plate. It's like, well, what happens when you see a downturn in staging and all this? Like, I think it's going to change the shape of food. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about you know, is it even legal to allow stages in your restaurant? Um, I know Nick Kakonis has said a number of times on Twitter that nobody ever comes in Alinea and doesn't get paid for it at right. any of their restaurants. Um, a lot of well-known places have been sued for upwards of $100,000 for labor violations. So, you know, I do think it's hard when you have a staff of like five guys in the kitchen to do all that stuff. Totally. I mean, so to be clear, like even with my company now, we pay like above average salaries for everyone. We don't take unpaid work. Um, but I do have this kind of like back to my point about like making experiences the most that you can make them. I think that there is an intense value in, and I think you and I both follow Gary V and DRock where they're just like super into uh, pushing working for free just because the access that you can get when you're not asking for any sort of uh, monetary compensation which is a resource that everybody's trying to juggle, right? Can often give you greater access than you would have based on whatever credentials that you're able to present that person. And so I, I'm, I'm semi an example, right? Like the first um, couple of years of my career, like I worked for free, but I eventually was able to turn the experience and the networking and what I saw and what was interesting to me into a paid position, which then benefited me in the long term. Um, but I, I hear you, man. Like there's a lot of people who just like, they work, <laughs> there's a guy that stodged with us and he just like, he worked for free for honestly, like four and a half years. Like he would just travel the world staging, uh, like, and he didn't know how to do anything. Like he was really good at prepping. Um, but he, he didn't necessarily know how to cook which was a very, very interesting thing. But I, I, I hear you on the, on the realm of um, people not having those resources. But I, I, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be something where like 
you take everything from these places and you try to emulate it because you have to have the wherewithal to see, I don't have 40 people on staff. But you can take some of these principles and see like, what if we just like cleared off the counters before we went to go eat staff meal or like other little things like that, where it's like, you don't have to take it to the complete extreme, but what are these kind of like system focused thinking? I think all of us can do that regardless of the size of our organization, you know? And I'm not opposed to the working for free. I think it's when you're being exploited and you're not learning anything. I like my internship, even though I was paid, it was an amazing experience. And I would have still done that for free to get that. It's when you're in there and you're just tying bunches of herbs or sweeping the floors and you're just like, you know, instead of having to hire a dishwasher, they're taking this free kid and having him do that. Like if you're going to be working the line and coming out with tangible skills and learning organizational skills, I'm all for that. Even at my age, like I tomorrow would go stage at a restaurant if it was someone I wanted to work there. If I wanted to go and learn, I would go work at per se, you know, just to have that experience, but I'm going to get something out of it. Totally. And that's so that's an interesting point. I don't I don't necessarily know if we if we think the same on that because I think that if you are getting to the point where you are working a line style position, like you're on the line cooking a piece of fish, plating the entire dish that's coming off of a station and like it would be a real detriment to the restaurant if you didn't show up to work that day. And you're doing that for free. Yes, you're getting a ton of experience, but like I think that if that is the situation, you should be being compensated for that. If I randomly missed my train, my subway train heading into into Manhattan to do my uh, externship at Per Se for one day, the restaurant would get by just fine. You know what I mean? Like I was, yes, I was there observing and learning, but I didn't technically have all that much responsibility. Like it really would have sucked if on Friday the inventory for the walk-ins didn't get done because then the sous chef would have actually had to do it because that was like something that got delegated to me, you know? But like I was there in a learning style environment where I was observing, I would help with some things because like I wanted to get my hands on the stuff. But I think that there that's a little bit of that delineation where it's like... um if you really truly are providing value to an organization, then I don't think it's that hard to ask for compensation in return. But then, you know, you see all these, like, what is the excuse then of like people who have a 17 person uh, team on staff that's plating like the super intricate salad where it's like, it takes so many hands to make this come together. If all of those people didn't show up on the same day, yes, it would be a detriment to the restaurant. But I think that's where there's a little bit of a difference. Yeah. And also, um, you, you know, I guess it's, I mean, there's a lot that goes, goes into this conversation because I've thought about it a lot over years, but like in relation to what culinary school costs, because I know someone who staged all over the world and that was like their money instead of going to culinary school. When I look at, you know, spending a hundred to $200,000 in culinary school, it would still cost you less in money if you had to pay for rent out of pocket for a year or four years or whatever and still had these experiences. So like someone after four years, are they better trained to cook in the real world in restaurants if they've even just staged at Noma, Grace, Per Se, Alinea, whatever, versus four years in this weird bubble of Johnson & Wales, CIA, whatever. So, you know, you look at it both ways. And I know people who've exclusively just done staging or working for minimum wage or something like that and have come out very much more successful than people who went to culinary school. Because then you have the the opposite. Like I have a bunch of people who I worked with at some of these places who are just, they've been there for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years 
and it's just like they enjoy it because they have a, they get a level of respect in that kitchen where it's like they're not having to earn their respect because they've had a certain amount of tenure which is amazing like they've been committed to that organization for a while they know the ins and outs um you know they probably have great benefits and a 401k plan and all this stuff that's that's going on with the restaurant um and it it, it almost becomes this thing where if you if that person knows that the next thing they're going to do after that restaurant is their own thing it becomes very difficult to kind of break free from that because then and i think <laughs> so many of us are guilty of it where it's like if you just got done watching Sean Brock on chef's table like the next menu you write is probably going to be in you know what I mean like and so if you've spent so long at this one place um it's a balance right like you have to change things up to continue to like inspire inspire yourself especially when you're like this moldable kind of piece of clay in the start of your your career um but yeah it's very interesting so you're not working at a regular restaurant right now. So Correct. all of these years in restaurants have taken you on a, a different path at this point. So what does your day-to-day look like where you are? Totally. It was when I was working in Norway, I was a sous chef and I gave, I was, it was, it was getting ready to be time for me to move back to the U.S. And I told my chef, Christopher, I said, I think it's going to be time for me to go. And I, like I said, I gave a year notice and he said, what do you want to do in these last 12 months while you're here? What do you want to learn? And one of the things that I told him was like, I, I really want to look at the books. Like, I really want to look at the numbers um, because a horror story that I tell on a, I think it was a Patreon stream podcast. If anybody's interested in getting the juicy details, I do tell it. Um at Grace was that they weren't paying us, they stopped paying us overtime. And so I just remember looking at one of my paychecks and it was just like abysmally low. And I remember Curtis Duffy taking all of us chef to parties into the private dining room and telling us like apologizing and saying he didn't know that we weren't getting paid. And there was literally like 30 of us on the team. There was like 15 cooks, 15 front of house basically. And to me, I was just like, how are you the business owner, but you and the general manager don't know, like there's one person doing payroll. It's one lady. Like I know her name. Like I, I can point at her. She's right over there. It's not like we outsourced it to like this firm that was like doing payroll. And so I was just so confused as a young cook of like, why, why does the chef not understand this part of the numbers? That was my first instance. And then the second instance was hearing the profit margins that French Laundry was making because they, they, they bring in about a million dollars a month in revenue. And to see the amount of money that front of house was making versus what back of house was making, and this was back in 2013, 14, basically, was also very perplexing to me because I was like, you're bringing in so much revenue, but I'm making eight twenty five an hour. And so that was very, very confusing. And I didn't really understand and I, I, I didn't have enough experience. I didn't know. And so when posed with the question of like, what do you want to learn? What do you want to see? That was something where I was like, I really want to see this. Like, this is like a, a case study. Like when you go to law school and they give you case studies, like I wanted, I wanted a real example. And in one of the meetings, I just remember we would sit there and he would say, guys, we made a killing last month. We made 8% profit. And I was just like, holy shit. Cause you look and it's like, Staffing cost was 40%. It 
you're living in Scandinavia, like you pay people super well. Um, we got five weeks vacation. It was amazing. But like ingredients, we were trying to get like these vegetables from up in the mountains because like where we lived was there was a bunch of fjords. And so you had to like get up and over to get f- flat enough land to actually grow things. Um, we're using like incredible pork, uh, amazing ingredients. We were, um, we had a great rent agreement in a museum. And so like a lot, a a portion of our rent was like, we had a great deal with our landlord, uh, on paying for those sorts of things. Like I was doing inventory every month so I could see what my food cost was. And it was like still eight for every dollar we get, we only get to keep eight cents. That was crazy to me. And so I started to, you know, really rethink what goes into having a successful business model like this, because there has to be more level levers that you can pull as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as a chef. I got really into watching Casey Neistat vlogs because I was, like I said, I had a ton of vacation. And so I was like, I was using that time and those resources to like travel a lot. And so I got into watching him, which led me to some other YouTubers, which eventually led to me watching like um, Tim Ferriss stuff. I, I, I was doing Tim Ferriss stuff like before, like uh, post French Laundry time. So for timeline for people, it was culinary school, Grace, French Laundry, Norway. That was the time, the chronological timeline. And so I started to listen to these people. Gary Vee got on my radar and I was like, oh, these people are like putting content out and using that money that they make from this content. I didn't technically understand how, but they were using it outside of like getting a TV show. Again, back to like me watching Food Network growing up. They circumnavigated all of that and they were putting out content online. I was watching Chef Steps and I was like, oh my goodness, these guys are like putting content out of Seattle. Like they're using real restaurant techniques back when they were like doing their OG content and people are watching and like they're making money. What if I could do something where I would produce content? I could still cook, but like produce, like find a way to produce a show out of the content that I was making. And so that led to me creating a show at the restaurant where I completely taught myself editing camera stuff. I didn't go to school for this stuff. I watched tutorials on people making wedding films to to figure out like how to do fun editing techniques and color grading and audio adjusting and all that stuff. And so that led me to creating the show called Dish of the Day, which was a show where I would, we would change our menu every, you know, two to three weeks at the restaurant. And I would, you know, oh, tomatoes are coming into season. Uh, what's our next langoustine dish going to be? Because, you know, winter chicories are starting to come out of season. What are you guys going to, what, what are you going to make next? And I was kind of holding like a chef to cuisine style position as a sous chef where I would manage the team, but then also kind of like do a little bit of recipe development as well. Um, and so I would shoot a show where I would work on a new dish before my shift. I would shoot it. And then I would kind of like take it, take the dish to my chef for feedback, but then I would use that content to publish on YouTube. And that kind of expanded into this whole thing. But the idea was, what if we could have a a space that was like a, a cooking studio where content came first? Because like the numbers on, you know, brick and mortar style food establishments is just like abysmally bad. And I'm sure that the numbers on content studios and like 
people who produce shows is also bad because they probably get lumped into like small businesses that that failed too soon. But the I saw where things were going as far as like more people getting internet access, smartphone adoption going up, like Snapchat was just becoming a thing at the time. And I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be big. Like, I think, I think that there's something here. And so the idea was to have something where the, the cooking studio came first and for full transparency for everyone, I'm not there yet, but the cooking studio where you create content, where Samsung comes to you and says, Hey, we have this new, like Samsung comes top of mind because they just released phones today, but like we have this new phone that came out and we want to show how you can prop it up on your countertop and cook recipes off of it. Where are we going to shoot that? I would prefer they come to me with all my years of cooking experience and I can cook something that then gets filmed that turns into a Samsung ad that pays my bills. And then because I have this passion for like expressing myself through food and having like fun dishes that you know, just make people happy in whatever way that they're celebrating. I would do those types of experiences on Fridays and Saturday nights, like the the nights when people actually go out to eat. I didn't want to have to worry about what is my happy hour menu on Tuesday going to be, you know, because most people know, like, unless you're in like a high foot traffic area, doing something like that is literally discounting your offerings in hopes that people will come in and fill your seats you know what I mean? You're, you're taking it at a loss on the food side in hopes that people will buy alcohol. Um, and so there's so much of like the food and restaurant and those types of business models and, and mentalities that just didn't make sense to me. And it, it just seemed like signing up to a swimming competition where you start by tying weights around your ankles. You know what I mean? It just seemed like such a losing battle from the start. And so I was like, what if I gave myself this new set of skills to set myself up for semi paradigm shifting things, but like pop-ups were a thing, man. Like people were doing fun pop-up style things. Next was doing their seasonal menus where it's like every season, the menu changes to a different type of thing. So it's like, and I think that this is a possible takeaway for your listeners is that I wasn't trying to completely reinvent the wheel. I wasn't, I was taking things that I was seeing that was working, right? Like, I see Snapchat is working. I see people like watching food content on the internet, made by internet people, not necessarily food network people. I see that the traditional restaurant business model in the way that, you know, I was talking about a three star in Chicago, that doesn't work all the time. Like you are so set up for the uh, the numbers just aren't in your favor. And we are seeing this exacerbated by COVID, unfortunately. Like I feel so bad for all these places. But um that led me to doing pop-ups here in Seattle. I was pretty confident that I was going to try to either seek out an investor or prove the model first and then lead into being able to completely bootstrap it myself. Um, and I just didn't have enough experience running a startup. Like it was me. I had another chef who was like one of my best friends, which is like a whole nother thing. I hired someone to do sourcing for me just because I knew I really wanted to use really great product. Uh, I had a guy who would help me with marketing and then I had a videographer and that was kind of like our little small team. We were going to take over the city um, and we got really positive praise from Eater. Like I got like a couple of great dinners under my belt. The biggest thing that I wanted to focus on during that time was figuring out what does Justin's food look like? Because at the time, like my first few menus was like, 
it looked like a Frankenstein menu of like Lise Vaca meets Noma meets French Laundry. You know what I mean? Like it, it didn't look, it didn't have an identity yet. And so I wanted to use that pop-up time before I kind of committed to a, a space for any of this content stuff to figure out what does my food look like. And during that process of doing pop-ups, I met this woman who is now my business partner and she was doing event production stuff where she was just like doing all these different food events, some things not even related to food, where she would execute with, you know, celebrities. She was going to New York pretty often, going down to the Bay Area. And she was like, I do these food events, but I'm not a chef. And I was like, that's interesting. Like I'm do I'm technically doing events, but I'm not an event producer. You know, this is interesting. And so long story short, like we got we we ended up chatting and I did a couple of dinners for clients of hers. We really enjoyed working together. She had a bunch of like small tech startup experience. And back to me not knowing enough about running startups, I thought it was a natural fit for for her and I to start working together. She offered me an equity stake in the company, which then turned into her saying, okay, like you really took this seriously when I gave you a piece of the business. Like, would you want to come on as co-founder? And so then we kind of like launched it from there. And so that is what is now Voyager's Table, where again, I run the culinary program of that, but it's not completely reliant on food being the driver of the business. So we do full suite event production and hospitality for um, clients all over the place. So again, from New York to Vancouver to San Francisco to Seattle, um, obviously COVID put a bit of a damper on that and we had to do like a heavy pivot. We can talk about that if you want, but um, yeah, that, that was like a really big unlock for me where it was like, she, we have ambitions to launch media projects going forward. Obviously we're trying to just stabilize during this time, but finding someone who shared my same values where it's like, she is such a hospitable and gracious food loving person, but she also sees the economics of restaurants and just kind of is like, eh, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, and so she's just incredibly savvy in being able to figure out these other opportunities to do this thing that we love, but do it in a sustainable way. Because if you don't keep that top of mind, that's when you see these things where it's like you have to hire free labor because your food needs to be more impressive because you need to get the media attention again, because you need to get the people coming into your door, because you need the revenue during those off months to be able to pay your rent. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's so funny to take these restaurant incentives and boil them back down to like, okay, this is why this is a problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. So I guess one thing is, I mean, it sounds like you enjoy it. I think the challenge is a lot of people do it because they feel they have to, right? Like everyone's saying you, you have to blog or you should have a podcast or a YouTube channel, or you got to get on TikTok or, and it doesn't come natural to a lot of people and they don't enjoy it. And then I think it shows, right? Like, you can tell when someone's making a YouTube video that they don't really enjoy it, but someone told them they should have a YouTube channel. It right. seems like you definitely went in, not just because you saw it as something you needed to do or should do, but it seems like you genuinely enjoy doing it. And I think that's one of the big differences. But that's the thing though, is like I, when I hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube, I published my first YouTube video. I don't think it's in, in its entirety, but like a large percentage of that first YouTube video. And it is so cringe, man. Like I had no personality on camera. I was like trying to make these weird jokes to the camera that like, oh, well, I don't really actually care because I thought that it was just so uh, silly and too try hard to actually like be a personality on camera. 
But then I realized that like the people that I liked to watch don't do that. They, I, I like watching them because they're just themselves. And I actually feel like they're telling me something from their, like, I respect them. Like I listen to them and I like watching them because I respect them and because I feel like they're being real with me. And so if I'm not going to do that and I'm going to try to put on this face when I'm on camera, like who can I expect to listen to me? Um, but yeah, man, it was like, it was a process to learn how to convey ideas in a clear and concise way. I always told myself in high school that I wasn't a good writer, but then I would be able to sit down and write like 6,500 words. That was a script for a YouTube video. And so it's like, I think there's a lot of people who have these negative points of self-talk with themselves just because either someone told them that or because that they just had a, I, I use the analogy from Italian job where the guy says, I had a bad experience. Like, it's the same thing. Like what, what in your life made you think that you, like, was it a school presentation where you had to make a video and you sat in your desk and you blushed a little bit when you had to hear your voice for the first time? Like what happened that makes you so averse to this thing that everybody reached for first when they had to shut their restaurants down? You know, like people reach for their phones to put the word out about things when COVID hit. You know what I mean? Or it's like, you have a new thing that you want to tell the world about. Like, wouldn't it be great to have an email list to do that with? And that's where like, I get a lot of value from finding people who don't, if you're not a YouTube person, go follow David Perell, P-E-R-E-L-L. He runs a course called Rite of Passage and he only talks about writing. If you are only interested in audio, you brought him up earlier, Naval Ravikant tweets, and then he sits across from a guy and they do two-minute podcast episodes where he just elaborates on the tweet that he read. It's audio only. There's no video version of it. And it's just like that gets listened to millions of times and there's no sort of like, you don't have to put your face on. You don't have to work out of the little tiny bowls of like, these. this is my baking powder and this is my butter. You know, like there's so many... It, it, there, there's so many opportunities for you to share your ideas that scale. That was the interesting part for me with all this content stuff is that like the fascinating economics of a restaurant is like, if you have 150 seats and you can do two and a half turns, that's an amazing, like you are so limited by what you can do in revenue on a night. Whereas Chris, if you and I went into business together tomorrow and we launched a headphone company and Wired wrote about our headphones, and we got an influx of 9,500 orders, we could call up our manufacturer and make it happen. If you get a great write-up in the New York Times, and you suddenly have 5,000 people that want to come eat at your restaurant on Saturday night, you have to tell 4,500 of them to go away, because you just can't do it. And so it's like, it's this paradox of like success where like you literally just need to be humming along at this specific amount of business and that's doing well but if you really like being able to go parabolic on any of your things like you have to find other ways to scale and for me if you're thinking of food as an idea or productivity or like travel or what you learned any of these things can be distilled down to ideas so why would you not find ways to make those scale that was kind of like my mindset going into it. So let me jump back to Naval there because so 
I love him. The whole podcast on wealth creation, which is like his, he called it like tweet storm, right? Mine. So Gold for mine. anyone who's thinking about scaling, growing business, trying to be wealthy, um, I would recommend that. I recommend it all the time, but I love that. If, for people who don't know, he did this thing on Twitter where it was like a 42 tweets about wealth generation. And then he read it and broke it down into like 42 podcast tracks, like four, 42 podcast episodes. So you can just go listen to one. The one I love is where he talks about like time and money and, you know, kind of like he gives himself this aspirational hourly wage, which is, you know, it could be $300, it could be $5,000 and says like, if it costs less to, you know, have someone else do it, do it. like if it's going to take you two hours to mow your lawn and your time is worth $300 an hour, you can get your lawn mowed for less than $300 an hour. Pay some guy $60 to mow your lawn and use that hour to build something great. You're not going to build that thing that's great by eating away at your day by doing all these stupid little chores. And I think that's what so many people in life do. And it's really um, taken a lot of effort or a lot of work for me to kind of figure out what is worth paying to have done so that I can focus on the important work, right? And, so not if, and, and not everyone's on that same page. I think it's hard when you have a spouse who might have a different view on money and, you know, like, don't pay someone to do that. We can do that ourselves. That or, was, you know, your, whether it be your, your parents or man. something, you know. That, that was my parents. Like, my mom was always like, do it yourself. You just got to like, why would you pay someone to come clean the house or like mow the, do the landscaping or work on your car? Like, you can change the oil yourself. And my dad was like, to his fault, right? Like he basically got in, in his seventies now and he like, doesn't know how to do basic, basic things for himself because he was just like so averse to it. Um, but yeah, like four hour work week was the first thing that actually taught me that, which is Tim Ferriss's uh, best-selling book where he gives the analogy of like, if you make $35 an hour, if you can find a task that you will pay 35, $30 for, no, if, the reverse, $40 for, whether it's logo design or video editing or cleaning something for you, you are by having someone do that task for you, you're only paying $5 to have them do it because your wage is 35. They, they charge 40, you know, because with that time you can then make $35 back is kind of the mentality behind it. And yeah. it's so funny that you bring up Naval because I'm writing a video right now um, talking and it's so funny. Uh, the video is, is, Semi might be called why I still pitch restaurants, even though I don't have one. And it comes from this idea that Naval responded to, to this guy on Twitter, uh, where they asked, what would be the best bet as a career in today's day and age for a young professional in early 20s? And his response, which is such a Navalism, was skills, not careers, period. That's it. And I think that that so encapsulates kind of like what I love. One about Naval is that he's so concise and to the point and full of wisdom because he spent so much time introspectively thinking about these things and getting real world experiences. But also in that answer, there's so much to unpack in the sense that like the idea of having a career is dwindling and dwindling, man. Like it's evaporating. Like it's a little tiny pool and we're all watching it go away. Um, the, the, the way to be valuable in today's job market uh, market in general, like the age of the internet, is to be able to market your skills. It's not your college uh, diploma. It's not the place on your resume. Sometimes it matters, yes, if that place has weight. But to be able to say, 
to you or me, Chris, where it's like, I'm interested in like opening a brick and mortar. Oh, well, I actually have skills where I can cook, but then I can also have a camera presence and on camera presence as an employee of yours. Like those are two skills. I would much rather hire for that rather than all of these other sorts of things. So I'm like, I'm writing a video on that specifically because I think even if you don't have the ambition to own a traditional restaurant, the restaurant environment, especially at a place that has like, that has it figured out in the sense that they don't go through these lulls of like not having customers or that they're like a new restaurant that potentially has the potential to shut down. You have the ability there to get skills. If you go to an institution of a restaurant that's been around for a while, you can go there, you can spend time working and you can get the skills that I think are required to be a professional chef in whatever you want to have a food truck, you want to do pop-ups, you want to do in-person, you know, private chefing, like any, anything that runs the gamut, a restaurant environment is one of the best places to get those skills. Well, and some of our listeners have probably heard this or know this about me, but I worked at Ikea for almost three years and a lot of friends razzed me at the time, you know, you're a real chef, like, what are you doing? Just making meatballs. But you look at them and they're a global billion dollar organization. I've never worked for an organization as well organized or, or as good as what they do as them from marketing to hire. You know, you learn how to hire, you learn how to give critical evaluations to your staff, you learn how to market. You know, it's this crazy thing like we would have a dry erase board uh, with a map of the, the kitchen, the restaurant in Ikea. Have you been to an Ikea before? Yep, totally. So, I would have to like watch one guy and then follow him with a marker on the dry erase board. And every time he stopped, put an X. And then I'd have to pick someone else and do that. And then after doing this for half an hour, you had to analyze the Xs, right? So like everyone's standing at this point. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean a bunch of things. One, it could mean there's a bottleneck. Maybe we put the silverware there and everyone's stopping and it takes a lot of time. So maybe we need to move it. Or maybe that is the case, but also could we put our high margin margin item there so it's getting extra exposure? So if everyone's staying at this spot for 30 seconds to get their silverware, if we get, you know, a 60% profit on this dime cake, should we put the cake there and use it as a marketing opportunity? Like that's the kind of stuff that you don't learn in a traditional mom and pop or even a Michelin restaurant, but they have that down. And it was that kind of stuff that I left even after just two or three years there that was invaluable in starting a business. I have a old sous chef of mine who would wear a pedometer before your phone was so good at keeping track of your steps because he would get pissed if the day the day's numbers were more than the steps he took the day before because it meant that he was being inefficient in his movements in the kitchen. Where it's like, if he saw like, oh, I took 2,500 extra steps that day, what was it that I was running around so much? I don't want to be running around. I want to be so effective that like, I move as little as possible. I make one trip to the walk-in, grab all the stuff I need, and then I can just stand there and prep. One point that that makes me think of, which is a fascinating story, the other point is I was listening to uh, either an audiobook or a podcast, I can't remember, that spoke, it was an audiobook that spoke on the value of Ikea putting food in the middle of the shopping experience at their retail locations. Because the, just the data shows that like humans' ability to make these kinds of frivolous retail buying decisions are you're, you're, easy, you're more easily marketed to when your blood sugar is satiated. So Ikea 
took a look at it and they're like, why is the Ikea restaurant not at the end of the shopping experience? It's in the middle because they want you to be a better customer, you know, here in the sense that you're going to spend more money. There's a a number of reasons also. Uh, One of the things is to reinforce the low price profile. I actually wrote a blog post on this that went viral and it ended up in the New York post. And I caught some crap. Like I had a lot of people from Ikea reach out to me. I didn't think it was a big secret. You know, it's the idea of loss leaders, but basically, you know, you're a young guy, you've never bought a couch. You go into their store um, is $599 a good price for a couch. I don't know, but like, you know, that for 99 cents where you get this breakfast with coffee, that's a good deal. A hot dog's 50 cents. That's a good deal. A whole meatball dinner's 399. So you're taking a literal loss on the food to psychologically tell people that everything here is a better price, even if that's not true. But they use that to reinforce that. And I wrote about that and I didn't expect it was going to go viral. And then it ended up in like all these newspapers. It was on an Australian TV show where I was quoted. And then it was turned into this show in London um, called tricks of the restaurant trade. So amazing. It, it kind of like the doors got blown off. I didn't, it was on uh, the Quora website. Yep. Like someone was yep. talking about marketing and totally. I'd given that as an example. And somehow it just like got all these upvotes and it has to date like 3 million upvotes or something. And it's crazy, but you know, things like that where they're using psychology to market their products. And I think that's where guys like us hopefully are going to be successful. I think if you just focus on restaurants, the restaurant business, you're going to have a hard time. I think you need to look at business leaders and other organizations and see what they do and then apply it back to the food business. Well, so I immediately thought of the, and I, I apologize that my head always goes to fine dining, but that's like a bunch of the news that I, I fall, I cover on my podcast when, um, Massimo Bottura partnered with, uh, Gucci because he went to high school with a guy who's like either a like a co-president or something like someone super high up at Gucci and they basically took like a similar breakfast at Tiffany's model and I'm sorry if I'm kind of like screwing up the details of this but where you would have a food experience in a retail environment because you have all these sorts of benefits to kind of gain from from engineering something like that in your brick and mortar because in the same way that like restaurants struggle during covid like retail struggling you know just retail has been struggling for a while and so like you can and this comes back to again my one of my first points about like making the most of you could have taken that experience at IKEA and been like oh well this is just such a humdrum thing like i'm cooking in a furniture store or you can pay attention to the details, the whys of what's going on, the larger forces that play. And then, you know, maybe you decide like, I don't know, pick a, pick a brand that is like struggling. You now have this skill that is cooking and being able to integrate into these uh, different types of business models and incorporate that into something that you're going to offer them. And then you could effectively create your dream job. Um, I don't know. I just think, think people, um, either simplify things a little bit too much or they focus too much on the negative aspects of, you know, insert position or job. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, like, I don't even know that I want cooking to be what I do for the rest of my life anymore. Like I want to be in the food world and I left a job so I could start my personal chef business and I love it. 
It's fulfilling when I get to create dishes and going out and cooking. And Chefs Without Restaurants was like this little side thing I was doing almost as a joke. Like I thought it was going to be like four people that I knew who we were just going to gig share to help each other get more work. It was so I didn't have to pay advertisers. We could like gig share. Um, and it's turned into this community of people with all these things now. And now I'm helping people with doing their websites and doing marketing and trying to get, you know, deals with sponsors and stuff. And I enjoy it. I enjoy the process of podcasting and it's like, wow, I don't even know how much I want to go cooking anymore. Like cook because the cooking's not scalable, right? Like that's what everyone always said is like, how do you grow? How do you scale? And I didn't want to be back to the office manager where I'm sending a bunch of cooks out to go do perfect little bites dinners and I'm not cooking because I didn't enjoy that. But this is different. And this is like the scalable thing. So I still want to hold perfect little bites close to me. Like that's going to be my thing. And I don't see releasing that, but as chefs without restaurants grows into a much bigger thing, that's the organization that I'm going to be bringing people onto and growing. And it's still in the food world. It's just, you know, it's like only three years old at this point And I never thought it was going to be this thing. I think there's another piece, and I, I think it's Patrick Collison, who's another writer for Stripe, said this in, 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 the, in the similar line of, if you know how to cook, you will never be without friends. And so I think that if anybody is like, because there's a lot of sunk costs too, right? Like you and I spent a lot of time getting these skills to cook well, and to uh, we spent a lot of begrudging time just being disciplined and just like getting to where we are at. And so this idea of giving up food in the way that you have the, might have the relationship to food right now, which is like five days a week, long days, service starts here and ends here type of environment. It can be really hard to give that up, but doing the work to kind of take it, take a second and think like, do I have to serve dinner every night to be, satiated with what I create and put on the plate. And that goes back to my point of like, why would I not focus the business around this other thing that scales and spreads the ideas and also makes money? But then I leave the cooking part and the menu creation and the food execution part to the point when I can actually be happy if we have 15 people gathered around a table on a Friday night. Like it, 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 it's not reliant on filling all of the seats. Like what if I use that as a mental model? And that just completely blew the door off of it for me because I was like, oh my goodness, like this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like I have weeks now where I have four events in a week and I'm almost like, man, I wish I didn't have to Bravo. cook four days this week, you know? Bravo. Yeah, well, you know, it's been so interesting with COVID. Now I'm seeing a lot of um, things that used to be big, like weddings a lot of people are doing these like 10 to 20 person weddings where normally they would have gone to 300 people. Um, and it's insane the amount of people who are now just saying, I've rented an Airbnb on a farm and we want 15 people to do this wedding. Can you do that? Or do you know someone? And um, I think that's where personal chefs and people in this business have a little edge right now if you don't have a brick and mortar and you're looking to pick up things like this. I let out such a sigh of relief when we had an 800 person gala scheduled at the end of March and it obviously had to get canceled because of COVID. And we started, we had to pivot to, like you said, these like, cause we're, we're also opening up in phases in Washington where it's like these smaller gatherings, which was basically like, that's what I was doing before I just, you know, came on with this company where it's like small, intimate, like 
really focused, I could cook all of the food style events where it's like, that is such a comfort zone for me. And I really love that kind of environment. So I was like beyond jazzed when that was the option. You know what I mean? So how about burnout? Do you feel like you're ever doing too much? Is Have you cut anything? Is there anything you were doing that you sure. just decided isn't worth your time? Yeah. And- a little bit less pressure on myself to upload as frequently as I was. I mean, when I was like, when I went from a hundred to 10,000 subscribers, I was pretty consistent about uploading every single week. But then at the same time, it's like, I was not cooking as much. And so then when I started to like, come on as a co-founder and have to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and manage more things on the day to day, it was like, I just wouldn't have the time because it was like, um, I'm managing my relationship with my fiance, like her and I are getting married in, in October. And like both my parents' health kind of took a turn for the worse, like in the past two years or so. And so there's like, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get managed and juggled. And so being less judgmental on myself has been really helpful on the content front. And I have pitched it pretty much from the beginning where it's like, I'm not a YouTuber podcaster first. And I think that if the identity piece of it kind of plays into it a little bit with people sometimes where it's like, if you call yourself a YouTuber, but you're only publishing one video every three weeks, like it's a little bit easy to be down on yourself. Uh, and you and I, I think we're talking before the mics turned on about your schedule in, in uploading where it's like, it's so easy to get the momentum going and feeling like, oh, well, this is the reason why my, my downloads are going up and more people are joining the community and like all that stuff is because of the consistency of uploading. When in reality, it might just be because you're making good content. You know what I mean? And the consistency part is something that's in your head because it's a correlation, not causation kind of thing. And if you actually did take the time to take four weeks off so that you can then come back and continue that consistency going forward versus doing something where you start to feel the burnout and the quality of the episode starts to go down, you're not as excited during the interviews uh, and all of that stuff, that causes you to potentially have to take a six-month hiatus because you're so burnt out. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I weigh that. I weigh that uh, a lot. But I, I still, if I'm being honest, like I still haven't gotten to the point where I don't feel like I'm leading a double life in a way. Like the goal is to get to a point where I can go to one work location. I can have a team that helps me execute on all of these things that I want to work on. And then I can have hobbies and kind of like a little bit of a life outside. Uh, Like I can, I can turn, I can leave the office and shut things off. And that's kind of it. I'm not there yet because I'm still proving the event style business model to be something that, that is uh, like fully autonomous where we can like have a team that, that executes on the stuff with us. Again, COVID threw a wrench in that. We were so we were 80% booked for 2020. It was like we were set to we had we had a nine person office. We were getting ready to hire, like do a massive round of hiring to go from five employees to seven or eight. And it all got disrupted, which is really unfortunate. But I still think getting to the point where there is an element of content creation and thing business activities that scale being the steak on the plate. And then I can have these other things, whether it's like doing an ambitious tasting menu to bring people together that we want to be potential clients. Like that gets me excited. Um, And then a little bit of this kind of like 
mentoring slash having fun conversations like this slash sharing my ideas on other topics, that's also kind of like a little side dish on the plate. I'm not there yet, but I would like to be there in the next, hopefully, three years. That's the goal. That's a good goal. Did you have any content that went viral or is it just like um, yeah, yeah. Was there one video or anything? Ish. I think I think it depends on what you call viral. Um, have yet to get anything in like in the millions of views, but I've had a couple knife review videos that just like uh I think one is about to hit two hundred thousand views um on YouTube, which is just a testament to like the <laughs> market dynamic I noticed where it was like before I would buy anything. And this is when I was like really getting into like shooting videos and cameras and audio equipment. I would watch like 13 reviews on a camera before I would buy it, you know? So I was like, why, why don't I, because I, I also have this intense fascination with like chef gear and knives. And I was like, what if MKBHD made a video about a chef knife? What would that look like? You know? And so I tried that a few times and I got into like, what's in my knife bag videos in the same way that people make like what's in my camera bag videos, which I watched a ton of. Uh, and so those, I would say, go went went a little bit more viral than than I kind of expected. Um, I'm always kind of interested to see. Um, I happened to publish a profile, an interview I did with um, Vincent from Corin, the knife shop in New York, uh, and I published mine within 24 hours of when Alex French Guy Cooking also published his. And so that video also just like went crazy in views. And then I had another video linked at the end of that, that a bunch of people like algorithms are crazy, man. Like how they suggest videos in that, in that sort of way. Um, I've had an interesting perspective on just virality and internet fame in general. That's changed a little bit where I don't, I'm, I'm trying to find the balance between wanting to grow in the sense that I want to see it continue to improve um, and reach new people. And I don't want to use this mental model I'm kind of going through you know, as an excuse to not want to do well. But I also don't want the Guy Fieri le level of fame you know, that comes with being like a food per personality where you just like have pe weird people coming out of the woodwork criticizing your eyebrows for like you know what I mean? Just because you have some sort of level of clout where it's like they get pleasure out of like tearing you down in some way, shape or form. Like the thousand true fans essay just like really rings true with me where it's just like, if I can have my small little corner of the internet where it's just like, I can help a certain number of people. And even if it gets to being in the thousands, like people I've helped that already is an order of magnitude above what I would get if I had a brick and mortar kitchen and that was the only way that I mentored people was if you were in my kitchen working for me on payroll, that's the only way I mentored you. Because if I can even just hit that little milestone, that then is a, is a win for me. And that's kind of like what I've been trying to, to wrap my head around where it's like, I don't actually, Tim Ferriss came out with a great piece recently where it's like, you don't actually want to be famous. And I thought I, I got a ton of value from reading that where it's like, if you actually write your goals and ambitions down of what you want to do and the impact you want to make and the ideas that you want to share, you might realize that you don't need in the seven figures of followers or dollars or eye, eyeballs on your, on your content or whatever. Um, 
Ryan Holiday talks about this a lot too, like the, the notion of enough, like what is enough, you know? Um, so I think about that a lot in the sense of what is the amount of impact I can have or people following along or like when I share an idea, like how far does it go or how impactful is it? Uh, does it hit the right people at the right time? That to me is potentially more important than going viral, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it helps when you get some attention, but finding that right level. I'm a huge fan of a thousand true fans. We've talked about that on the podcast a lot. You know, I mean, what good is it? You see these people who have 10 million followers on Instagram and they take a photo of like something that's just like garbage and it has like 852 likes, but like, what did that do? So Paris Hilton took a picture of a ham sandwich and it has 500 likes. Like, does that move the needle on anything with her and her group? Like it's just there, you know, but if I post something and it has 20 likes, but like one of the people, like it helped them. Like I published a recipe, like there's one woman um, who lives in Baltimore and she always makes my pickles. Like I love it. And she tags me every time. Like I published it on my website and my Facebook page. And like every time she makes them, she's like, put my perfect little bites pickles on my sandwich. Like I'm much happier with that than having 300 likes of that random photo, you know? So true. I randomly had a guy who was just DMing me, like showing the the post love. Like I would ask, I would do polls on Instagram and he would always answer them. He was always really thoughtful with how he would interact with my content. And um, I had an extra knife from a review and I sent it to him because he was asking me about a certain knife that I had um, covered or, or asking me a recommendation on which knife should I buy. And it was like, to this day, I have this connection with this person who I've never met in person that is just like, it supersedes all the other numbers. Do you know what I mean? That come through on social media. And I think that it's, it's so easy to get caught up in it, man. Like it's so easy to get swept away or judgmental on the content. When if you, again, back to Ryan holiday, he's like, he finished the book. Stillness is the key. And he was like, I want to get to a point where I finish the work. And that is the satisfaction. Like it's not, does it hit New York Times bestsellers? It's not how many thousands of copies does it sell? It's not how big was my fee from the publisher? It's like, can I finish? Can I, can I hit the last period on the page and be happy with the work that I put in? Like that, that is much more in, in, gratifying, I think. And if people, I've talked about mental models exhaustingly now in this, in this interview, but like to think in that way, I think is much more, sustainable. I think like you can do it longer as a, as a professional. Yeah. Yeah. I read the daily stoic every day, both the book and his email. And I find that it keeps me grounded. I especially love the email because it's so relevant to what's going on right now. Um, The book is kind of timeless. And then the email seems to be timely and just, man, I don't know that I could ever think and write as articulately he as he does in the way that the, he thinks and writes. But that's, you know? and that's that. But that's also the thing is that yes, he is writing new content, but he's doing it based off of principles that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. You know, like when he quotes Marcus Aurelius, it's not like he's coming up with anything new. Like he's dissecting it a little bit and sharing how it might apply to our our lives here in 2020. But the ideas themselves have been plaguing humanity for for how long? I will. I will. Uh, share this with you and maybe it's something that you and I can do 
as a as a joint project someday. But I have this idea that I want to do something very similar to Daily Stoic, but it's called the Stoic Chef, and I want it to be like these learnings and quips and fundamentals that just relate to our industry because I think that the the um, operation like installing stoicism in a chef's brain does so much for all of these issues that we have with ego and temper and creativity and uh, taking feedback and all of these obstacles you know all of these sorts of issues to be able to offer something that is a resource for chefs to learn a little bit about operating more stoically, I think has like industry changing potential. I sounds hope. like, it sounds like a fun project. Yeah, I know. I need to, again, the, the information's all there, but like my, a lot of my listeners and audience people already know that like I had this shared Google drive recipe project that I launched and I thought it would be something that I could like do with my community and I just like, I got completely caught up in other projects where I just like, I can't, I can't manage it right now. And I get emails every single week. Where's the recipe folder? Like, I really want to do this recipe thing. So in addition to all the other things I have going on, I have like, I, I can't take on another thing right now, but it is in my headspace of like the Stoic Chef as a project, whether it's a newsletter or a book or a blog or an Instagram thing or a Twitter account. I don't know. I think it would do some good to a lot of people. Well, and I've started transcribing my podcast, which has been really good. And just using like, I use Otter use AI. Uh, I use oh. Otter and uh -huh. it's not like a hundred percent. And I haven't gone, I don't correct it a hundred percent when I upload it. Like it, I think it helps with SEO, but I did think about like, that could be a really cool book. Like if I spent the time and actually edited it and edited for content, edit it down and make sure everything's spelled correctly. It's like, at this point, I have 60 interviews with chefs from different walks of life and different backgrounds. And I think that would be like a really cool thing to put together. But that's like, I'd have to put the podcast on hold or outsource it to someone like totally. give, give them the files and be like, okay, you edit this. Like it's almost there. It's like 90% there. Like, can you make this legible and make it like a tribe of mentors type thing 100%. all the people that I've talked to. So I'm going to continue doing that. And as I have time, I'm going, cause I started at like episode 40 something. So yeah, I have like yeah. 40 episodes that I need to go get edited first and then uh, have them transcribed. But you know, something for I think days when I have time and resources. Totally. I think transcribing podcasts is something that I'm a little bit averse to because I don't think I've ever read a transcript of a podcast. So it's one of those things where it's like, I don't interact with it as a consumer. So I don't push the value forward and prioritize it enough. But um, yeah, have you seen a lot of people who, like you said, it benefits for SEO, but. That's, that's what they say the big thing is, is that it yeah. benefits for SEO and that people like to read, you know, when you look at the deaf community, there's a whole untapped yeah. market there. But yeah. really the way the transcription is, because it's so dense in discussions it's not a uh, um you know like attention grabbing headlines like clickbait to try and fool seo it's real stuff sure. so you know we're having a long conversation here and all the things you've talked about are going to show up so when we're talking about like doing knife reviews on youtube like my podcast might show up because of interesting that. yeah um, that's so true and, and that that is the number one thing i'm in a lot of podcasting facebook groups mm. um and everyone says like if you're going to spend the money and time on something that like the number one is to do transcription and that you'll see a ton of extra stuff from that 
fascinating. Um, but it's great to like skim for like looking for the stoic chef. Like it's mm-hmm. easier for me to speed read and skim for like comments than to go and listen to it for an hour. That's true. I can skim and be like, oh wow, like this person already talked about that. Like there's my sound bite. When I'm looking for sound bites, I can go and read it rather than necessarily listen to the whole thing. Totally. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a no-brainer for me for a while to do certain videos where I would like, it was like a 10-minute YouTube video where I would talk on a topic. Like I did a whole breakdown of uh, why Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday could benefit the pro- professional chef. Like that in and of itself should also be an article. Like it's a video on YouTube. I released it as a podcast. It should also be an article. And the easiest way to do that is just to like plug it into like otter or rev.com and just get the transcript, send it to someone who is better at writing than I am. Again, me with my weird negative self-talk on writing and then have them send it back to me as a finished piece with like, this is the head, this is like the head, the header, or I guess like the the title of this section. And then here's what you talked about. Here's where we'll insert a, a picture of a quote from the book. And then below that, then you go into another section, like really make it into a nice article slash blog post and then kind of go from there. That's been in my head for a while, but again, things that I haven't prioritized enough yet. Well, we, I feel like we could talk for hours, but I want, I want to um, respect your time. Is there anything you feel like you didn't get out there that we need to talk about today or we can do some follow-up? I definitely think in episode two, even if it's like you come on the emulsion podcast and this is like a a double kind of like episode two kind of thing. Awesome. Super valuable. I'd love to have you on. I, I, I did want to, especially because we both have done private chefing stuff in the past, to talk through either like something that would be beneficial for my audience because I want to use some clips from this audio of like, we've seen a lot of information of people from restaurants that are usually either well-regarded or gave them a point of view on food getting hired as private chefs, whether it's for one-off things or as like live in three meals a day type of relationships. Where is your kind of head on, and you can talk pre-COVID or or current times of like someone coming into that space, what should they kind of be thinking about um, and things that have proved to be valuable for you starting in private chefing? I mean, for me, I wanted to run a profitable business. I mean, I think the hard thing is I've talked a lot with guests. A lot of people are side hustling and they don't know how to make the jump from side hustle to permanent. You know, the reality is I was working at a job where you're making like $60,000 a year and then tomorrow you're personal chefing. Like it's very hard to go from there to like, oh, wow, crap, I made 20 grand this year. (laughs) You know, like how do you figure out? I think the big thing is pricing. So I always want to be transparent about pricing, market, what the costs are, what you can get and what you need to be providing to get there. Because a lot of people are side hustling $30, $40 dinners. And that's great side money if you're working somewhere. But like, could you go work three days a week this week and only make $30 a head and dinners. Like it's not a realistic business model. Some side hustles with your pricing and the market you're in, you're never going to be able to support your family on. And I think that's the real truth. And we need to be having those conversations. So first of all, I think you should always do it on the side first. 
Now, a lot of people are coming into this market with no food experience. I see a lot of people who are accountants and they now want to be a personal chef. They've never done restaurants. They don't have a lot of business experience and they have this like pipe dream of being a personal chef full time and being able to support themselves on it. And I think that's a dangerous thing. And I really like having those conversations about the reality of it. I've had a number of people on the show who have like baking businesses, like they bake cakes and stuff. And on Instagram, it looks like they have a very successful cake business. But what's success? Because they're also working a 40 hour a week job as a something else. And what they're Correct. not saying in the public eye is like, oh, by the way, I could never live off of my cake business. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're happy with it. But I think it paints a dangerous picture that like, you can go quit your job and start this food business and live off of it. I mean, I make no revenue right now off of Chefs Without Restaurants. It's only Perfect Little Bites. And that's the only job I have. So if I'm not making money with that, I'm not making money. And, you know, I've got a wife and two kids and all that stuff. And it's expensive. And I can't be out there making small potatoes. Totally. But I know how to make food. I know how to market to those clients. And I figured out, for me, what works with what my costs are and all that stuff. So I think having more conversations around pricing and all that kind of stuff is the most important thing is we need to be more into it. And I know people always say like growing up, like don't talk about money, but I, I think I'm doing a disservice if I'm not talking about money and saying like, this is what you can get. Some people might say, well, I've tried and I can't get a hundred dollars a head or 150. Like I've had dinners where people are paying me over $200 a head for dinner. And that's like facts. Totally. You know, and bra bravo for that. But also, so my my business partner has this anecdote that I think she got from Oprah, which is treat people how, uh, treat people how, no, teach people how to treat you. I totally screwed up that quote. But it, it it's this very true thing of like, if you continue to do $25, $30 a head dinners, what do you think is going to continue to come through the, to the door into your inbox? You know what yeah. I mean? Or it's like, if you if you show people that that is the value that you uh, post as the benchmark for your services, like that's going to continue to be where it goes, but it, it is intimidating, man. Yeah. I mean, do you know Chase Jarvis? Do you know who yes, he is? Yes. Yeah. And he's a Seattle guy. And he, yep. he's yep. talked about this a number of times. He does photography and yep. um, Seth Godin's talked about that. I think maybe Huge. they talked about it on his show, mm -hmm. that idea of like, you're always going to be the cheap guy. Like totally. you go and you do this dinner for $50 a head, like you're not going to be able to convert those people ever to $100 a head. And they're going to tell all their friends that you're the guy who does the $50 dinners. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard. And it starts this cycle and it starts this trap. And, you know, I've had some of that. I've had customers when I was starting out, I didn't know how to price them. And then they became longstanding customers and they were expecting the same thing. And I lost a couple of them when I raised my prices. Like at one point I said like, okay, I've done eight dinners for you. Just so you know, you're still paying $60 a head. Like everyone else pays a hundred. And because you're one of my first like guests, I've honored that. But like the reality is I can't chart, I can't do that anymore. And then I just, I priced them out. Like they couldn't do it anymore. Sure. And you know, it is what it is. So you still continue to do all of the negotiation and client interaction yourself. You don't I have, have anybody zero else. employees working for me for either of my two businesses. So I do two things 
hundred percent me. <laughs> like something's going to give at some point. Beast I'm trying God. to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that, but that's where, you know, you also figure out what works and what doesn't and you cut that stuff. I think sure. I could pay someone to do some of this stuff that wouldn't even be worth exploring. Mm. Like mm-hmm. for me, it's, I just value my time and my money and then having to figure what works. I mean, I want to bring on employees at some point, but again, I think that's going to be chefs without restaurant stuff and not perfect little bite stuff. Right. Um, but you know, I always say I have easy pricing. Like when I price my dinners, it's flat pricing. So whether you get a uh, jerk chicken, that's a hundred dollars or filet mignon, that's a hundred dollars. Like right. it's the cost of doing business. And that way I don't have to price out everything. And some people get it and some people don't, totally. but I don't want to get in the haggling. And then at that level of price and cost, um, there's a lot of flow. Like I don't have to nickel and dime things. You know, like I know a lot of people who are like, oh, well, you know, I'm only there for four hours. Like if I'm there for six hours, like you've paid for yep. me. Like, yep. and, and I can pay for help. Like, again, I don't have employees, but when I have bigger parties, I hire people and I pay 40 to $50 an hour. Like I pay people what Stellar. I would want to get paid because mm-hmm. we're going to do a dinner for 20 people at $100 a head. That's $2,000. Yep. I might run a 20% food cost. So I'm still making good profit. I have no overhead of a building, no capital expenses. Yeah. So the only costs then are labor if I'm bringing someone. Yep. So, you know, come show up at this house and get there at five o'clock and we'll leave at 10 and I'll give you $300, yep. you know, because yep. I got 2000, take 300 out. I'm at 1700, you know, and maybe I had $300 in food cost. I still made a good profit, but that's how I want to run my businesses sure. um, and put that money back in people's pockets. Yeah. So I like talking about what I charge, what you can get and how much I like to pay my employees. Yeah. A big thing that flipped for me was when I met my business partner and she had a bunch of clients that were already in her pipeline, but then I also brought a bunch of people who I was doing dinners for into the Voyager's table kind of orbit and having her just advocate on my behalf as far as pricing goes and doing all of these negotiations on contracts and being able to do larger events and coordinate all the things that are involved with scheduling and rentals and venues and florals and all of this sorts of stuff was really valuable for me. If I can share anything that was um, particularly impactful. But then the other thing that we had a huge unlock on was to just set a day rate for for my time. Because then on top of that, it's like, then it's a, it's a cost per guest where if the client all of a sudden says, hey, 15 people aren't going to show up, you know, or the other way, hey, we have 15 other people who want to come, um, it, it, it bills effectively. And then we also know that and that's how it how it started off with our relationship, similar to how you're talking about like as long as you know that your time is covered, then you don't care if you spend an extra 35 minutes like having to clean up or if you need to go to you know a, a market and get some extra whatever, um, because you know that you're you're not as you as in your words nickel and diming the client yeah. uh, to kind of make like it that work whole for market you. price thing. Like I don't want to yeah. say I pitched a menu yeah. and then I got there. It's like oh, burrata went up two dollars a pound. Now it's going to be like yep. eighteen dollars a person instead of fifteen. Nice. Like everything's covered in there, and I don't have to worry about that. Correct. And not that I want to use cheap product. It's just that like it gives me that little buffer. And then from there, like I throw in bonus courses based on what you get. So if you get a chicken entree, then maybe you're going to get like a really awesome ribeye second course as a bonus. Totally. So totally. it comes out, you know, and I just have built my business on that. So it all comes out where it's about the same, but I can choose how to balance my costs. You know, oh, that's really, that's really, I, I think a lot of people, uh, 
at least from my audience, will get some value from that because there's a lot of people who have questions on just pricing in general. Like people like Seth and Chase talk about it a lot with fear of fear of pricing your work, pricing yourself as an as a creative, just in the market in general. Because uh, I think that's a funny thing about a lot of these combos is that like I don't think I've ever hired a private chef to do any sort of party for me in the same way that Chase Jarvis probably never has hired a photographer before. So they don't have the emotional connection to that purchasing decision. Whereas like any of us have gone out to dinner before and we've paid $7.50 for a plate or, you know, $14.50 for a sandwich or, you know, $38 for a main course. And so then for us emotionally hearing that we are charging $100 for a two course or three course, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that's exorbitant, but then it's like, no, it's actually not when you kind of like factor all of this in. Um, and I find another if, thing that if, happens, if, if you can get yeah. your customers to tell you what their budget is, I find that helpful that too, too, because that I too. also found that I was like undercharging, you know, there's a lot of people who think that a hundred dollars is low based on what you're giving them. Totally. And I find that like, I just say, well, you know, here's a scale of what it usually is. And I'll say like 85 to 185 ahead or something like sure. that. Like what's your price range? And some people be like, oh, you know, can you do a really nice dinner for $200 a person? It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yep, yes, I can. indeed I can. Indeed I can. I think that that's the other, the other misconception that happens when people make the leap from a 55 hour work week as a chef in a restaurant to doing stuff like private chefing. And this is something that became increasingly clear when I was doing pop-ups where it's like, oh, well, I can price things in this way because in a day I will make this amount of money, which is X multiplier more than I used to make in a day. But then you also look at my month and number of days that I was generating revenue in that month. And it's like, oh, well, you're actually making less per month. You know what I mean? Than you were, even though your day rate is a little bit higher because the irregularity of it just kind of brings this other uh, wrench into it all. And so I would encourage people to think about that where it's not necessarily that you're making the day itself worth it, but like I do work on the lead up to these events in after the event, like I have to return all the rentals. Like I have to, you know, uh, clean equipment on, on the days off, you know, like I'm spending time working on these things when I'm not billing for it. And the client's not technically paying for it. So that should be included in the price that you're charging. 100%. You know I said I mean? it so takes like four, your time. It takes four days for me to do an event. And, or more, you know, if I'm doing a dinner for you at the end of the month, I'm emailing you back and forth to find out what you like, don't like. I'm spending time on my computer doing a customized menu, send it. We got to go back and forth. Then, like, I have to go to the store. I have to buy stuff. I have to prep stuff. I have to commute to your place, yeah. you know, execute there. I'm there for five hours, drive home, do dishes. So yeah, I mean, people say like, oh, it must be nice to work three days a week. But it's like, I couldn't do, like if I have four events in a week, I it's almost too much. Like I can't do it. Like three, totally. especially if they're big, is about the most I can do. But yeah, yeah and, and people ask me about like what you make. I've had months where I've made $1,200. Yep. And I've had months where I've made $12,000. I mean, and it just, it's really hard because it ebbs and flows and you have to know it all comes out in the wash. And I know at the end of the year, like the needles moving up and year over year, my revenue's increasing, sure. but it's scary when you come into, you know, March and I made $750. I'm not even talking COVID, like 
2019, yeah. I had months where I made like $1,500 and yeah. you're like, wow, that sucks. Yeah. And then I have November and I make $12,000 in the month of November, you know? Totally. So you just have to keep pushing and, and hope. But that's why, again, like talking about money, I have no steady income that I can, yeah. can guess. And COVID has just made that even harder. I have no idea. I had months that were hard and thank God for some help with some unemployment and things are bouncing back a little now. And, you know, you just keep plugging along, but that's where you have a bunch of irons in the fire. I mean, when you're not working, you got to work. Like that's where I'm not generating revenue from the podcast, but maybe make a better podcast where I can maybe monetize or create more content where I can get more customers. So, you know, makes sense. I think this is going to be like a really cool double episode. I think I'm going to split this into two episodes. I (laughs) I think, but I think that's good. We talked about kind of like what my workload would look like. So just edit this down and put out. And you know, I don't know how you do it. I, I, you've had podcasts where you talk by yourself where it's not an interview. Like I don't think I could just get on the mic and talk like that. I have trouble recording my intro talking (laughs) for two minutes into the thing without sounding ridiculous. I think the 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 behind the scenes secret of that is that i i will typically at, at least for episodes probably 30 through 100 i would write out every single word that i said and i would literally just read off of my computer like i was reading i was not going completely off the cuff i've gotten a lot better at it over time where now i have this kind of combination of like i leave bulleted notes underneath articles that i'm covering and then i will kind of like use those as a starting point for the, 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 the riff that I want to go on. Um, but yeah, it's a, I, I like that cadence of like solo episode, other episode, but I've also been, the, the solo episodes need to just be, be their own YouTube videos on certain topics kind of made that hard line decision. Anyways, this is me just nerding out about content. <laughs> I, I do this every time I find someone who also does like YouTube in the chef food space. Cause I feel like we all operate in our own silos in, in, in this, this weird world that we live in. Uh, and when I get, get get the chance to talk to someone, I kind of geek out a little bit. So. Yeah, no, I'd love it too. Like, and again, cause I think you also seem to read all the same uh, books and follow the same authors yep. and kind of people. And I think, again, you start to see this um, commonality of the people who are kind of in the food entrepreneur space and who are getting into kind of food multimedia, if that's what we're calling it, yep. have all taken a page out of so many of these people's books. And, you know, when I was thinking about starting my business, I wasn't looking anymore at restaurants. Like at that point, I had been working for so many years, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but didn't know how to really do any marketing at all, or really media. And I was doing my commute to work every day, I was spending two hours in the car, and I was just listening to every book by all those guys, Gary Vee, Tim Ferriss, you know, all Ryan Holiday, doing all kind of um, self growth kind of thing, you know, listening to rich dad, poor dad, and yep, reading yep. all these things just to kind of put myself in the mindset of an entrepreneur and someone who is going to start a business. And then marketing, I've taken so many plays out of their books. And I just wasn't looking at restaurants any, anymore. I didn't need to kind of model my business off of some personal chef or some restaurant, but I needed to learn how to, to market and advertise. Dude, if I if that model, the create content for five days a week and host dinners, you know, high end kind of like custom menus at seasonally changing with the menus, what the chef wanted to cook, like a Kaiseki counter style dinner model existed. I 
had the skills and the resume to go hopefully at least have a shot at connecting with that person and go working for that organization. It just didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like I applied for, uh, what was the, the role? Content producer, content uh, host, something, something at Chef Steps. Like I wanted to move to Seattle and work at Chef Steps for a while because that was the closest thing that I could see of like real techniques, real cooking, like, you know, authentic personalities, but internet first, you know what I mean? And that was like the only thing that I could look at and be like, yeah, that's something similar to what I would want to do at the time. And it just didn't exist. So it was like, okay, well, I got to figure this out myself. What are the resources that are at my fingertips that I can use to at least <laughs> crawl myself closer to this goal? Because it's not a, it's not a well-paved path. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, what's next? Just keep on trucking, right? Exactly. Like that's the only way. Because the thing is like, I feel so much platforms are changing. Like so many, so many homies of mine, like, did crazy well on TikTok. And now it's like, we're doing Instagram reels now. Like what's happening? You know what I mean? Like all this stuff is constantly changing and that's the the blessing of it. And the curse of it is that in 2015 or 2016, the first video that I hit upload on, on YouTube, I was kicking myself because I was like, you're too late to YouTube, dude. Like it's the, the ship's come and gone. You're going to be a has been, no one's going to watch your content. Like you're too late for YouTube in 2016. I was thinking that. And now it's just like, it's more than ever, like more than ever. The most valuable skill you can have is being good on video. Yeah. I just, um, I mean, I've always been a big fan of Instagram, but I started using, have you ever heard of flick, which is like a hashtag website? It's really cool. It like analyzes your posts and your hashtags, but there's a hashtag strategy and I've been using it and I've been growing about a hundred followers every two weeks, which is like for me fast. On Instagram, that's unheard of. On Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it is, is it looks at, it analyzes how many followers you currently have. There's a video and it's free. It's like an instruction video. It analyzes how many followers you have and then hashtags for that growth. So like for me, like true cooks, I'm not going to rank because I only have like 2000 followers. Totally. But like maybe true cook street team because that has less. So there's all these algorithms and you make like 10 blocks of like 30 and they have this mix where like on day one use hashtag groups one four and six and day two you use two five and six and day three you use three two and four and it's a mix of like um high uh search to low so like group one is for like up 20,000 and below posts and then like group two is like 20 to 70,000 so it's a mix of like rolling the dice and hoping you hit on one of the ones that has like a million or ranking really well on a low searched one. So it's this really interesting thing. And you just build like 10 blocks of 10. And then every day you use three of those blocks and every post you just rotate through. So even if you do two, a three, two, three posts a day, you switch up all of those. And it's really interesting watching how much Instagram has grown just by switching up the hashtags, but using this. F-L-I-C-K. I think it's F-L-I-K, search like Flick hashtag. Yeah, and there's like all kinds of, there's paid programs for like more analytics, like $10 a month and 14, but there's some free ones, but there's some really cool videos. And even if you just watch the videos and like, 
you can pay for the program to have more blocks stored, but also sure. find you can do in the free version, you can do up to like three of them and then just like copy and paste them to a Word document to get around that. So I keep it on my phone and every time I do a post, I just keep track. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm at like number five out of eight. So then I have to find what like 30 hashtags that is. So Tube, there's an extension for YouTube called TubeBuddy. I use that. It does very, very similar stuff for like yeah. key, keyword search ranking uh, where you can look and it's, it's like a sliding scale from red to green of like uh, frequency of search versus popularity or like click through, I think is a, is the metrics that they use for like how popular is a Sujihiki knife, you know? Yeah, when I have guests, like I had Rich Rosendale on the show. So like yep. I, put, I search Rich Rosendale on YouTube and then like what is the top performing one and then go look at the hashtags that they used. Killer. It's like, oh, you know, certified master chef is one of the hashtags I need to be using or whatever, Bocusta or is one of the hashtags I need to be using. Totally. So there's so many cool tools out there and that's how people who are successful get there, I think, is knowing those kind of things. And that's where, again, I'd recommend getting into groups, whether it be a Reddit group or a Facebook group or something. I use Buzzsprout for my um, podcast. So there's an amazing Buzzsprout podcast group and like everyone in there is super active and you can just go on and ask questions all day, every day about podcasting. It's the only way to do it as a one man, one woman band. It's exhausting. Like... <laughs> Awesome. I think I'm going to leave it here. I think Let's this is a it. good first one. I'm going to cut this up into two shows and maybe we can do a, an episode two. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it, man. You're, so, you're, you're welcome on the show anytime. Awesome. Let me know and uh, I'll hop back on and maybe we can do that and go back and forth. Maybe we can do part two on your show and then we'll just like share files or something. Please. Um, awesome. Well, I'm going to do my outro here. So uh, thank you for coming on the show, Justin, and to all of our listeners. This has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media. Thanks so much and have a great day. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normal where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs>